0: Now
1: this is recording. RTI International Center presents Just Science. Welcome to Just Science, a podcast for forensic science professionals and anyone who is interested in learning more about how real crime laboratories work. In this season, we cover content given at the NIJ Forensic Technology Center of Excellence's Impression Pattern and Trace Evidence Symposium. If you missed the symposium, you can view the archives on forensiccoe.org. In episode three of the IPTI season, Just Science interviews Dr. Alicia Wilcox from Husson University and Heidi Eldridge from RTI International. Our guests discuss how visual aid and other tactics have been proven to help jurors interpret subject matter expert testimony. Listen to find out more about what jurors say is effective in communicating forensic evidence in court. This season is funded by the National Institute of Justices Forensic Technology Center of Excellence. Here's your host, Dr. John Morgan. Welcome to
0: Just Science, the podcast for forensic science professionals. If you're not a forensic science professional, you're still welcome to listen. If you are a professional or an aspiring one, then welcome on board, and I hope you learn a little bit from our guest today, who is Alicia Wilcox, a PhD, and how do you pronounce the university? Husson? Husson, yeah. H-U-S-S-O-N
2: in Bangor, Maine.
0: Bangor, Maine? Mm-hmm. Oh, okay, because you're very Scotch-Irish, like literally Scotch-Irish. I mean, tell me your background.
2: No Scotch at all. After my undergraduate degree, I went to Glasgow. Mm-hmm. I went there because um, there were three places in the United Kingdom that had master's degrees at the time. There are quite a few more. So this would have been back in the year 2000 I applied mm-hmm. and got accepted into Strathclyde, And I was really happy because it has a really good reputation, long research history, and they're just... This year, I saw in their alumni magazine celebrating 50 years of awarding master's degrees in forensic science. So they're one of the oldest institutions that do that. And a few years later, went on to do doctoral work. I went back to my professor who was working at Strathclyde in Glasgow at the time, started the doctoral program there, and then she moved to the University of Dundee, which is on the east coast of Scotland, and I moved with her. So that's why the doctoral work came from there too.
0: Okay, but you're in Maine now.
2: I'm in Maine. That's right.
0: It's colder in Maine than Ireland, isn't it?
2: Yes, except for the summer. So Is it?
0: So it's hotter in summer and colder in winter. That's a wonderful combination.
2: Yeah, so Ireland, they say, is a temperate climate. Now, I'm not a climate expert, but I know that. So we've got the Gulf Stream. So we've got warm water that brings lobsters, and we have warm air. So palm trees grow in Ireland, and we get a little bit of snow, a little frost in the winter. But you can't grow tomatoes or peppers or anything like that. It's just not hot enough in the summer.
0: Sure. Interesting. Well, with us today to help us out on our podcast is my uh, colleague, Heidi Eldridge. Heidi, welcome.
3: Thank you. Hello.
0: We're at the Impression Pattern Trace Evidence Symposium in Arlington, Virginia. These podcasts are actually recorded at the conference, but we'll be releasing them over time. And you're giving a talk on factors which influence jurors' interpretation of the value of forensic science testimony, which has been a subject of research for you for some time.
2: Yeah, so the whole PhD took five years, but the last three years of it were collecting data and crunching numbers. This was a gap in the literature. We have some understanding of how jurors or lay people would interpret a medical malpractice in those types of cases. But there was very, very little and almost none on how do they view us as forensic scientists. And that's really important for us to consider. We come to conferences like this to do training. We try to use the most up-to-date methods and collect the best evidence at crime scenes. Why? Well, it's for the end user, and that's sometimes a judge if it's a judge-only trial. But a lot of the times when we go to testify, we have to look into the faces of 12 lay people. Um, They can't ask us questions. We can't know who they are or their educational background. And we have to testify to sometimes complex evidence and hope they understand. So that's why I pursued this area of research to figure out what do they understand? Do they do a decent job? What happens if they don't understand? So I got permission from the Chief Justice in Maine at the time, and he wrote a judicial order to give me access to jurors, because in Maine, like nearly all of the other states, there are a very protected group, so they sit in. The research I did was on homicide trials, so the, the stakes are very high. The jurors sit in and hear the evidence, and then it happened that all of my trials, that the results of this research are based on, they were all guilty verdicts, so they put these people away for for life imprisonment sentences. So the judge gave me judicial access and wrote a write-around so I could talk to them on the phone. So I sent them a paper survey.
0: Now, was this after the trial was over?
2: After the trial. So about Mm -hmm. 45 days after the trial in Maine, they are fully released. Because in a sense, really, you could be a juror for 45 days in Maine. Normally, they only do a day or a week or in some very long homicide trials that they can go into the third week. So 45 days, and then they were considered back to being a regular person. They weren't a juror anymore. So I contacted them at that stage by paper, by mail or by post. The ones that were willing to participate further, I did telephone interviews with them with some standard questions, asking them about science and their science background and their CSI watching TV and things like that.
0: Sure. You know, we've talked about this issue a little bit in some of the other podcasts. And to me, it's really at the heart of forensic science, because especially for the qualitative disciplines, the subjective interpretation disciplines, because what is the difference between a layperson and an expert? What is it that separates expertise, you know, experience or knowledge or training and makes this forensic scientist's judgment different from... I'm just going to show a jury a fingerprint impression, right? You tell me whether it's a match, right? And we intuitively understand that there is a difference. But what can we do to show that there's a reliability to what that expert is doing that's an addition that convinces juries? I think that's at the core of what we mean by training and expertise in forensic science.
2: Yeah, I completely agree with you. And you're aware of this yourself, but it's a common defense strategy. We don't need the expert. The jurors can see it for themselves, and then they argue that with the judge. When do you need an expert, and when is it just intuitive that a person can see this fingerprint matches or this footwear impression is the same pattern? Why do we need an expert or this photo identification? Why do we need experts in certain cases if it's a comparison that the human eye can see? But the answer to that, I think, is you don't know what you don't know. Sometimes when that happens to me at trial, I will describe, if it's a shoe print, for example, some of the manufacturing things that can look like individual or unique characteristics or randomly acquired characteristics not everybody um, can see the differences. So, yeah, I think that is at the core of what we need. um, And why do we have experts is because this is specialized information and it's hard to see the small differences unless you've had the training.
0: Now, we have not done a whole lot under the Forensic Technology Center of Excellence on juries thus far but we uh, certainly intend to. So Heidi, you actually have a project we're going to be doing under the FTCOE on this topic.
3: Is that right? On a related topic, yes, Mm -hmm. definitely. I I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, Alicia, but I think that your work had to do a lot with the credibility of the witness
2: in the eyes of the jury. Is that right? That was a part of it. I'm hoping that'll be one of the first publications I've sent in that's under review at the moment, but the credibility, but also a bigger question was, how did they know when evidence is reliable or not? Reliability okay. was probably the two-thirds of it.
3: Okay. And the, the project that I'm going to be starting with the FTCOE is looking at, I suppose, the next piece, which is just the comprehension, the, how we know that they heard the message we intended to convey and whether they're giving appropriate weight to that message, if they're weighing it the way that we felt it should be weighed when we tried to convey our findings.
2: That's exciting. That was part of what I did, too. One of the parts that I felt a little bit, I shot myself in the foot. I decided to go to the trials myself, so I watched all the trials. I took notes and... You know, I'm a subject matter expert in certain areas of the testimony. and other areas, I'd be familiar. So with the DNA testimony or fire debris, it was very clear when they had a strong association or in the DNA, when they had a very high statistic, they said, this is the identity statement. And I took notes on that. So when I asked the jurors on the telephone, what was the most important evidence for you in your decision-making in the deliberation process, they did a very, very, very good job of weighing the evidence accurately. And that was not what I thought. I thought going into the research that they were of a certain educational level and probably didn't grasp the... Mm -hmm. Weighted the evidence and the importance of They did a very good job of weighing the evidence appropriately. I left the research feeling the jury system is a good system, and I didn't go into it thinking like that.
0: It's <laughs> <laughs> okay so, for you to be skeptical. <laughs>
3: so did you see any difference according to the discipline that was being evaluated? In other words, did you see that the jurors reacted more favorably or felt that the evidence had more weight if it was in something that is traditionally thought of as more reliable such as DNA versus if it was something that was sometimes considered less reliable like a hair comparison or something. So do you think they were taking their cues just from the expert testimony or do you think that their interpretation was colored by their their preconceptions of what that discipline's value was?
2: When I asked them that question, they, few of them had very, very little knowledge on forensic science. They were really learning for the first time about DNA or hairs or duct tape comparisons. And they had watched some of these on television, but they were they knew that the TV probably didn't depict the comparisons or the science properly. What I did find was that the credibility of the expert was very, very closely tied with the reliability of the evidence. And an unintended um, theme that came out was. The traditional forensic sciences that have seen less critique over the past 10 years, the ones that have numerical conclusions, the jurors put less weight on them than they did on the more subjective comparative sciences, including the medical examiner's conclusions. One of the reasons that they put more weight on the subjective, what I called narrative testimony rather than the numerical testimony, was because they could visualize it. The people who testified with a narrative testimony often brought a PowerPoint or a poster, or for some of the medical examiners, it was a rudimentary sketch of the human body showing where the stab marks or wounds might have been. So demonstrative aids made a huge difference. And the people who were testifying to numerical values didn't use demonstrative aids. They didn't explain how they came to their conclusions in very much depth, whereas the people who had made the comparison, the human eye, went into more depth and were in a more of a teaching role. And in turn, those items of evidence were given more weight. So that was a bit surprising, and maybe a little bit of concern as well to the community.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. To the extent that they liked the narrative testimony, it implies that maybe it was an understanding-based issue, right? When they heard that there was a particular statistics associated with a DNA match or something like that, well, I mean, I don't know what to make of that if I've never encountered those kinds of statistics before. So they might have had more limited understanding, right? And that may have colored the extent to which they thought it was reliable or trustworthy as testimony. Is it possible to kind of understand that from the data at this point? Or? I
2: think when I spoke to them, I asked them that. I said, you know, how important was the DNA testimony? And they'd say, well, we know it was him. So they grasped that the statistic, there was no question that the sample matched to the defendant, will say. But the other testimony where they saw something, there was one piece of testimony where the examiner brought the body was found with a garbage bag. And then there was a roll of garbage bags found in the defendant's home. And then there was a physical match between the two and it was a very detailed and visual comparison and the examiner took the jury through the whole process and showed them all of the different extrusion marks and all the different terms she used. They loved that. A part of the research before I started my own data was there's two types of processing of information, peripheral processing and central processing. So it's kind of it was unknown to me before I went down this path but um, central processing is when we cognitively actively try to understand evidence and we're listening, we're trying to weigh it up. Ourselves. Peripheral processing sometimes happens if somebody gets mentally tired and they don't understand the evidence, one or the other. They can then refer back to the a person's appearance, the tone of their voice, all mm-hmm. of those other extraneous things that have very little to do with the testimony itself or the evidence itself. When people cognitively process and understand, they tend to put more weight they've grasped it, they have it in their core. And that was one of the things the juror said, I really understood the evidence. I could really put weight on it at that stage. So there may be an element of what you said, did they really understand the significance of the statistic, the likelihood ratio, we'll say, or did they end up into the peripheral processing and thinking the person's experience, they have a lot of training, they've got degrees, they've got certifications. They still put weight on the evidence, but it wasn't the same depth of weight that they put on the evidence that they really fully understood.
0: That's fascinating. That plays into some things in terms of, well, a lot of different things, actually. So it reminds me, of course, we're doing some work in human factors and forensic science right now in FTCOE. But the other aspect of it is, to my mind, forensic science is the one part of the criminal justice system that truly is scientifically based, right? It's called forensic science for a reason. It's meant to be the one place where you can go and you're gonna attempt, instead of making subjective judgments, which like a police officer is expected, to do. All right, you come into a scene and you have to make quick judgments, you need decision making and that kind of thing. The jury is making very subjective judgments in some regards. The forensic scientists are supposed to be the objective part. Right, they ground the entire system. And if the forensic scientist isn't able to come into court and get to the central processing, right? Do a little frontal lobe action with that jury, it is kind of a failure in a way. We've gotta figure out a way for us to be able to convey that information to a jury in a way so that they will look at it from a truly understanding perspective as opposed to looking at some of these peripheral factors. If anything, that's the time when they need to do it.
2: Yeah, I completely agree. And I don't think it's beyond us. I think we're doing a very good job already. I think the, the system isn't broken. I went into it wondering if they really understood. They did put the right weight on the evidence. They came from all different walks of life. I did ask a question, you know, did deliberation process help in any way with your understanding of the scientific evidence presented during the trial? And half of the people said it did. I was able to help my comrades in the deliberation process. I understood parts of the testimony and they didn't. And the other few people said the deliberation process really did help me that they relied on each other. So that's really important important as well that the twelve people together pooling their understanding to be able to get to the nitty-gritty. I think it should be something that we should be more cognizant of when we're thinking of conferences and training, that we have some workshops available that we can go to on testimony. But I think we need to move both the wording of our reports. We think 95% of felony cases don't go to a trial. So there's a big gap there as well, how we are putting the words in our reports for attorneys to read and people to make plea agreements where there's no scientist involved at all. So the wording in our reports is really important. There's lots of people working on that, the understanding of in reports, but then also in our verbal test that we take the time to teach them that that's really worthwhile and if at all possible and I think DNA examiners can use some more demonstrative aids to help guide the jurors through a little bit so they can feel more confident in putting the proper weight on the testimony that's given at the case.
3: I think it's a really interesting point, this sort of two-pronged approach about the core versus the peripheral processing, because as you say, this core where they understand the central processing and they, they really understand it, it carries more weight and it probably leads them more towards accurate decisions because they have a better understanding of what they're looking at. And yet... As you said, at conferences we have testimony training, but if you look at the core curriculum of what most forensic scientists receive in the way of training to testify in their sort of in-house programs, Typically, those focus more on the peripheral stuff. You're taught how to dress appropriately. You're taught how to make eye contact with the jury. You're taught how to speak in a confident and soothing tone. And these are all peripheral processes. You're taught to impress them with your demeanor, which has really nothing to do with the central processing. There's very little training on how to approach the material in a way that will help the jury to understand and help them to have a a really good engagement with the material. So you might get to, once or twice in your career, go to a national conference and sit in on a workshop for that, some people won't go at all. And so I I feel like there's actually a real reversal between what ought to be
2: emphasized and what is emphasized in the training that most of us receive. I completely agree with you. And that was one of the reasons I picked this. I had gone to some of the workshop trainings and wondered, what's this based on? Don't wear a red shirt. It could incite (laughs) anger. Some people said for women, tie your hair back. Well, don't tie it back too tightly. You could look severe. Don't wear dangly earrings. Don't wear shoes that are too high but don't wear flats, you know, all of these silly (laughs) things. I talked to some of my uh, counterparts. Really at
0: the heart of the reliability of forensic science
2: Yeah. (laughs) Women in the south are supposed to wear skirt suits, but up in the northeast we're allowed to wear pantsuits and just things like that. It seemed to be the whole communication was your appearance, which would make you nervous. It's having the heart of a teacher. I think we know that as the core forensic scientists, that we have to be good at the science but if you can't communicate and want to communicate, you're in the wrong profession. That's really important, teaching cadets in the academy, teaching colleagues that are trainees, but also that part is really important, teaching the jurors and the judge if it's just him or her by themselves. Other research has shown that the judges do a Poorer job of coming to the correct decision than the 12-member jury. So
0: I believe that. Yeah, Yeah.
2: it's been shown time and time again because they're by themselves. The only advantage they have is they don't have to make the decision that day. They can go back and they can do some research or ask court clerks to do some research, and they'll tell you they went to law school and did one science class. So there's a gap there too. They often say that's why they went to law school. (laughs) (laughs) I agree. They They have a different sort of a skill set and their brains work a different way.
0: Well, the whole trial. Dynamic is, to my mind, very antiquated, and it isn't how you would learn anything. Like the whole idea of bringing in visual aids. Are you kidding me? I mean, that's that's like revolutionary in the court, (laughs) right? As opposed to anything even more advanced about trying to convey complex information accurately. And you're just going to have people talk for like hours and hours on end to to do it. I mean, it just doesn't work.
2: It's really artificial. One of the jurors, you're after bringing back something to me, she said it was very stressful because when you have to make big decisions, she worked in a business field. When you had to make big decisions in the business field, she said, you got to ask questions. you got to go home and think about it. So they're sequestered. They're not allowed to watch the news. They can't talk to each other. And then there's a big gap in time. Only two out of the nine trials that I went to watch, they were allowed to take notes. So they. There is the ability for main jurors to take notes, but only two judges allowed them. But sometimes I would testify on a Monday and they'd be deliberating two weeks later and they're trying to remember back to what did Alicia Wilcox testify to. They had no notes, they couldn't really remember and it caused a great deal of stress. And in the real world, you'd have notes you could refer back. They got some parts of the trial transcribed sometimes. They brought the gun back in with them and looked at the trigger. And But yeah, it's a really unusual way to make such a huge decision on, you know, particularly for the defendant.
0: So I assume Ireland must be a similar system to the United States. It's not an inquisitory system such as you have in Spain and Latin America and France, is that right? Yes. So it's interesting, I don't know whether, how many folks have been following it. Mexico just changed. Oh, did they? So Mexico had been, because they are an old Spanish colony of course, and they had been an inquisitorial system basically, the judge sits there and like, I'm gonna find out what's going on here, right? to a, an adversarial jury-based system. They've had a lot of challenges. <laughs> and of course, a lot of the citizens aren't used to it, right? It's a completely new thing. One of the questions is, did it matter in terms of the background of the jury? You know, I don't know how much you were able to collect it.
2: The jurors that responded to the research were quite educated, more than I thought. I did some research on main educational levels, and I think the jurors that responded to the surveys and the phone interview, which I think is typical of people who respond, they maybe tend to be more educated, and they saw maybe the value in taking half an hour or an hour on the phone with me. Lots of them had master's degrees, lots of them had bachelor's degrees, and some of them had some college and high school. So, it was, And there was a great age range from, I think the youngest was 19 and the oldest was 72, but there was, yeah, was one there was a
0: 19 year old on a on a homicide trial
2: mm-hmm. their educational level there was i still have some of the data that i haven't correlated because i had a lot of variables so some of it's still not fully analyzed uh, don't tell the uh, the university that one of the things i did notice i asked them a simple question would you have more faith or more confidence in old traditional tools maybe such as a ruler or new technology maybe a laser for example if you're measuring something and It was opposite to what I thought. The more educated people uh, were more aware of error rates and user inability with technology. So the more educated somebody was, the less likely they felt confidence in lasers. It was the opposite (laughs) to what I thought. I also noticed as well that education can come in two different ways. Formal education through university degrees and maybe formal certifications. And then there's the other type of education that might be on-the-job training. And years of experience. So, depending on what path that person had taken in their own career, they were all employed as well. They were either retired or were in full time employment. So, I didn't get any unemployed people. All those
0: hardworking Maine citizens.
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah, Yeah, I'm proud of them. But, depending on what they had done in their career, if they were retired or what they were currently doing, if they were a nurse or something like that, if they learned their skill set at university and doing certifications and having a particular license they tend to value that more than the people who had um, I had a high-tech uh, pipe fitter. He described his job to me where he made these big pipes that go underground and they're under high pressure. He was responsible for making sure they wouldn't blow up, but he came out of high school and did on-the-job training. And he told me he got paid over $100 an hour, so he was, he was very specialized. But people like that tended to put more value on years of experience than the formal education. So how we ourselves are educated colours how we think forensic scientists should be educated too.
0: The next question really is the difference between credibility and reliability, because you did look at those separately. And I'm trying to think, you know, what is... Because to me, credibility and reliability are it's very tightly tied, but you conceptually at least divided them in your research. Can you talk about the thinking behind that and whether you saw much in terms of the division there?
2: I think Heidi touched on it earlier. We're taught when we go to court that, you know, you need to speak for the evidence, and I would hope no matter if you're big or small or short or large, that you go to testify and they're listening to the content. I wondered if, if our credibility and our demeanor and those types of things influenced it. So I wanted to ask that question separately.
0: But did the jurors look on it differently? Did they always consider somebody who was credible to be reliable and vice versa?
2: So there was a moderate positive correlation between the credibility of the expert and the juror's perception of the reliability of the evidence, whether that was fingerprints or DNA or the medical examiner's testimony. So there was a moderate positive correlation. They were linked. The sample was small of 29, so it's possible with a bigger sample it could go one way or the other. So some of the terms that they used when I said to them, how do you know if an expert witness, given the trial that you watched, is, is credible or not? Some of the terms they used were demeanor. Their education. So jurors in Maine, like many other states, when they sit onto the stand, they go through their training and their qualifications and can take from five to 15 minutes at the beginning before they can qualify and go on and testify about the case itself. So they use that as well as a way to know if somebody was credible or not. So your education, your training, your demeanor, your willingness to speak to them in their own terms, they use that as another benchmark for credibility. If you testified with one attorney one way and then were defensive or argumentative, or with the other attorney, that hurt your credibility. So somebody that was open and was willing to explain the testimony and the the evidence in a way that they could easily understand. When I asked them about how do you know if evidence is reliable or not, they said completely different things. One of the terms that was probably the most common, they said, how easily the evidence can be mucked up with or messed around. So I put that down as chain of custody. How easy it was to be tampered, did the wrong person get their hands on it? So chain of custody was the most important thing. When we think of some of the cold cases that we're working on to bring into trial, that's sometimes a really weak link with older cases. Um, the box stayed in somebody's basement for 10 years. Yeah. Um, that would be of concern to the jurors. They want to know that it was in the right location, under a proper seal, packaged the correct way. So when defence attorneys ask those kinds of questions, they're probably good questions for the defence attorney to ask because they're tapping into the worry the jurors might have about trace evidence getting in on something that may maybe wasn't handled properly. Another part that they found evidence was more reliable if it fit in with the big picture. And another, I talked about central and peripheral processing earlier, but another model that we use for jurors interpretation of evidence is called the story model. And just real simply is that the jurors don't come into the trial like a blank canvas, that they come in with their own education, their own experience, their own world view. And during the trial, they're presented with stories, different people testifying, different bits of evidence. And it's often not a complete picture. So the jurors will fill in the blanks, how Mr. A got from A to B, for example. They'll fill in the blanks with the most plausible Story. That's where it comes from, the story model. And so the evidence that fit within the story, well, this person was a known smoker, for example. He smoked camel lights. A camel light was found at the scene. That could be the defendant's cigarette. And then the defendant's DNA was found on it. That would have more weight than the cigarette found in another location or a different brand so it would fit within the story the other police testimony and lay testimony if it didn't and it was an outlier so there was a few cases like how did the car get to that location they weren't really able to answer that why did he take the clothes from the victim and not leave them with the body but drive them 10 miles away and throw them in the bushes there that really caused the jurors concern and they were pondered that and discussed and worried about it and placed less weight on evidence that might have a strong association when it didn't really fit with the rest of the story. Sure. One of my
0: worries with all of this is that we're trying to push as much as we can to put forensic evidence in a quantifiable form, right, in a statistical framework. But you're saying the juries
2: are going to react negatively to that, really. I think so. I think that's huge. And I I would still encourage the people. There's lots of lectures and workshops this week going on with that. (laughs) And we do need to make sure that we have a very robust science. You said earlier forensic science is, Mm -hmm. is a science. You said objective. But there are subjective decisions as well. We do need to make sure that there's very clear foundational validity. I think some of the judges in the country and certainly defense attorneys everywhere are worried that this pseudoscience is the term they use sometimes. We need to make sure that we can instill confidence in the people that don't do the job outside of the forensic scientists themselves. But at the end of the day, we need to deliver the value of that evidence in a way that the jurors can understand. And if that is in a numerical format, we need to make sure... Research that's been published shows that they don't do a good job understanding either likelihood ratios or Bayes' theorem. So I think we should forge ahead and get that foundational validity, whether it's black box and white box studies that we're doing in the different sciences. But I do worry, I'm hoping that research such as mine and others will be taken into consideration, that we need to deliver it in a way that they can understand. It could be extremely accurate and reliable and check all the scientists' boxes, but if on delivery gets lost to the jurors, I think that's a failure.
0: Well, yeah, I mean, the key will be finding somebody who can tell a story about statistics, I guess, you know. There once was a man named Bayes, but... Sounds like the beginning of a limerick.
2: It does (laughs) sound like... (laughs) But it's not impossible, really and truly. I um, watched a presentation a few years ago, and we shouldn't be hiring these scientific lab people that can't communicate. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's really important for management at crime labs and ourselves um, working on the bench that we are communicators as well. So we're half scientists and half communication. That's an unusual skill set. We all know the doctors with the bad bedside manner, they don't have both. So sometimes people really skilled at the sciences aren't great communicators, and we need both. I think we really can find scientists that can communicate statistics in simple ways and we just need to put our heads together and find out the ways to do that.
3: We do need the communication but I also think the missing piece is, is some percentage of artistry. I mean, you spoke earlier about how much the jurors appreciated the visual aids. And I think that, you know, there are people with different learning styles, the visual learners and the auditory learners and all that. But I do think the the old adage about a picture being worth a thousand words is very true, that at some base level, we all respond well to visual stimuli. And on some level, many of us do not respond well to numerical stimuli, (laughs) because we don't have great experience with numbers. Most of us don't have a really good concept of scale. Mm -hmm. So if I say this is a thousand times more likely, or if I say this is a million times more likely, people don't really understand how much bigger a million times more likely is than a thousand times more likely. So I think the missing bridge we need is some way to visually interpret those relative scales so that if you're presenting numerical testimony and you're saying that this is, you know, a hundred billion times, whatever, if you could somehow show that in a way that resonated with the jury, where they could look at a chart and say, oh, I understand how big that is. Mm-hmm. You know, that's that's a brontosaurus of evidence versus a pea pod of evidence. Mm-hmm.
2: The chance of that, finding another person at random in a population, you could certainly show that visually.
3: Yeah, mm-hmm. and I think if we got some good graphic artists working on this and well, yeah. came up with a simple representation that people could really relate to. That might go a long way.
0: Maybe that is the story, too. I mean, it would be interesting to think through, well, what kinds of phenomena that people can relate to in their everyday lives are one in a thousand likely, and right. what kinds of phenomenon are one in a million likely?
3: Right, but then you, know? you have the sort of sociological, demographical difficulties of determining what is a common thing in everyone's life. Sure. So that becomes a challenge in and of itself.
0: Sure. Well, I hate to end the podcast on uncertainty, but that means <laughs> but that means that there's more research to be done. Alicia, do you have plans for further research on your uh, on your work in juries, or what are you doing next?
2: I'd like to. I'd like to do more. I'm going to see if I can seek out some funding to give myself a little bit more time. I'm a full-time professor at the moment, so I'd like a little bit of a wiggle room in my schedule to do more. There is a medical examiner out of Australia, and she came up with research just this past summer to show that visual aids from a medical examiner's perspective did a better job for the jurors to understand the evidence, but she also found that it also caused more stress, so that's another thing to be thinking of too, that the visual aids, we need to consider the impact that they have on the jurors, particularly if it's wounds or things like that, bloody bloodstain patterns and things like that. So yeah, I'd like to do more. Um, My sample is small, both quantitatively and qualitatively, so I would like to maybe do a compare and contrast somewhere um, English-speaking, and that's warm. (laughs) <laughs> um, and I have a few smaller research projects in the footwear impression evidence end of things that I'm working on with some students but yeah I'm looking forward to being able to pursue my own path as we go forward
0: well, we look forward to hearing more about all that in the coming years thank you thank you for being on Just Science thanks and thank you Heidi oh,
2: thank
1: you Next week on Just Science, we will have Andrew Kimball from Albany State University discuss his IFTS poster, Incorporating a Statistical Method into Forensic Shoe Print Analysis. Opinions or points of views expressed in this podcast represent a consensus of the authors and do not necessarily represent the official position or policies of its funding.